This morning, uh, we are going to continue in our series from the book of John. I don't know about you, but I've really been enjoying this series as we've looked at Jesus and as we've looked at the gospel through the eyes and the perspective of the apostle John. We are still in chapter 15 today, and we will be moving in to chapter 16. So if you want to go ahead and turn to, to John 15, you'll be prepared. But then we're going to take a break from this series through Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we will pick up where we left off as we get closer to Easter. This is the first time I've broken a series and picked it up at a later time. But the reason for doing that is we are now working right into Jesus' arrest, his mock trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then of course, ultimately, his ascension. So starting in March, Sunday, March 13th, we will continue in our study of John's gospel and finish the book out. And I'm hoping, like me, that you are looking forward to seeing Christ's resurrection through John's writings. I know you will. Well, as you know, over the years, some really smart people have spent a lot of time and energy and money doing exhaustive studies about humanity. They've studied how we respond to our varying environments, what it is that makes us tick, and what it is that we as human beings need the most. In fact, back in the 1970s, there was a book written by Christian author Merton Strauman, and it was titled The Five Cries of Youth. It became an extremely popular book with youth pastors who've now grown up and are now my age. In his book, Strauman suggests, or excuse me, does a great job of describing the five main needs that adolescents tend to struggle with. So much so that the principles he founded are applicable and effective and meaningful even to this day. For example, Strauman discovered that the loudest cry of a teenager, their greatest need is to be accepted and to be loved. And as I look way back on the years when I was a teenager, I would have to say that I can totally relate to that. Because I remember back then, more than anything, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be, to be popular. Like most teens today, my self-worth was tied to the opinions of other people, which was why I wanted to wear my hair long like the, my peers and dress according to the latest trends. I, I can't help but say this. When I was in high school, bib overalls became, became popular. <laughs> My dad gave in on a few things, but uh -uh, not with bib overalls. And the reason was, I said, Dad, why can't I wear bib overalls like the rest of the people? He said, because, son, that's all I had to wear when I was growing up, and you won't be caught dead in those things. <laughs> Discussion over, huh? I would imagine that no matter how far removed you are from your adolescence, you can look back and you can relate to all of this because Strauman was right. Teenagers long to be loved and accepted. But I think if we're all honest, that particular need doesn't fade away as we grow older. Instead, this longing to become popular just morphs into a more adult version of what we did when we were teenagers. Why is it that mature people still need to do and say things to impress their peers? 
Adults, I want you to be honest with me this morning. Have you ever said something, done something, bought something, or worn something in an attempt to be popular? Do you have a longing to be admired and accepted and loved by others? Well, if so, I don't intend to rain on your parade this morning, but in our scripture reference that we're going to read, Jesus warns us that if we follow him in life, we should expect just the opposite. So take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15. We will be starting with verse 18. And while you're working your way there, let me provide you with the setting. The disciples have just left the upper room on the night of Jesus' arrest, and they're heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane. They apparently stop along the way so that Jesus can teach them something. Because remember, these chapters record our Lord's final lessons to his followers. Keep in mind, it's just going to be a few hours, and he's going to be arrested. And this is why these chapters are just packed with vital truth for us today. It's not unlike when a coach gathers his team together one last time, just minutes before the game starts. He does this to remind them of the most important things that they have gone over the past week in practice, the things that will prepare them for the game that is ahead. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is preparing his followers then and now for the struggle that lies ahead. So with that in mind, follow along as we read John verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 18, through John 16, verse 11, and then we're going to bump down to verses 20 and 22. Be up on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along. I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. Jesus says this in verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. You belong to the world. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law, they hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Down to chapter 16, verse 1. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. 
I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Down to verse 20. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Before we go any further, I want to answer two questions that, that surfaced at least in my mind as I read this passage. First, what is the world that Jesus says will hate us in verses 18 and 19? Well, in the Bible, the world is used in three different ways. First, it can mean the created world. And you can see that way back in John 10, 10, where he says the world was made by him. It can also mean humanity itself, and you can see that used in John 3, 16, when Jesus says, for God so loved the world. Finally, it can refer to the world system. I'm talking about society apart from God, opposed to God and the things of God. Well, that is the way that world is used in this scripture. Jesus is referring to the fallen world's system, which operates according to Satan's values and not God's values. The world mentioned here also includes the portion of humanity that embraces these fallen values. And these people may not like us as Christians. They may even persecute us, but we must remember that they are not the enemy. They are Satan's victims. We can hate what they do, but we still must love them because God loves them. Now in, this, in, in the text in this book in John, this is not the only time that we are given this warning. The Bible repeatedly cautions us about the world and its fallen system. For example, in Romans 12, 2, Paul says this, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Since the world that we live in is opposed to God 
and his heavenly kingdom. This means as Christians, in a very real sense, we are living in enemy territory. Chuck Swindoll said it like this, residents of the United States of America no longer live in a Christian nation. I dare say we do not even live in a postmodern or post-Christian nation. I am now convinced more than ever that we live in an anti-Christian nation. When political correctness forbids humor at the expense of anyone but Christians, and popular culture finds blasphemy entertaining, a flood of persecution will soon follow. History has taught us this much. And this leads to the second question that I think we need to deal with after reading our scripture reference. Why does the world hate us? The answer of this to this is found in verse 18 when Jesus said, the world hates us because it hated him first. And it hates Jesus because of the light of his sinless life. What it does is it makes their sin and their rebellion stand out. And as his followers bearing his message, we get the same unwelcome treatment. Warren Wiersbe writes this, the believer is the new creation and no longer wants to live the old life. We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, but a dark world does not need light and a decaying world does not want salt. In other words, the world hates Christians because of our Christian lifestyle and our grace-driven moral base, which shines light inadvertently on the truth of their sin. In other words, we don't walk around thinking we're better than other people. It's just the fact that we don't involve ourselves in a sinful lifestyle really shines a bright light on other people's sinful lifestyle. No one likes to be seen as a sinner. When you or I tell a friend that we don't do this or that, it makes them look bad for doing those things that we say we're not going to do. I recently read a story about a female African chief back in the early 1900s who happened to drop by a missionary station. And hanging outside of the missionary's cabin on a tree was a little mirror. And the chief happened to look into the mirror and saw her reflection with its hideous paint of, of very evil looking features that had been painted on her. She gazed at her own terrifying countenance and she jumped back in horror and she said, who is that horrible looking person inside that tree? And the missionary said to her, it is not in the tree. The tree glass is reflecting your face. The African chief would not believe it until she held the mirror in her hand and she said, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? The missionary said, I, I don't want to sell it. But she continued to beg and beg until the missionary gave in. She took the mirror and she said, I will never have it making faces at me again. And then she threw it on the ground as it broke into hundreds of pieces. That is an illustration of what the world hates about Christ and his followers. Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings are like a mirror, and that mirror reflects their sin. Every aspect of Jesus, his character, his teaching, his life, his attitudes, his responses to life, all of this is a threat to the reign and the realm of the God of this age. And if we follow Jesus, 
if we pattern our lives after him, we're going to face various forms of, of suffering for the same kind of reasons. But before you get too down about all of this, I want to point something out. There is a sense when being persecuted or being hated for following Jesus is a wonderful thing. You see, when we face persecution for our faith, it's an indication that, that we are on the right side, that we are living contrary to the way that this fallen world chooses to live. Persecution for righteousness is really a litmus test for our faith. It's an indication that, that, that we are on the right side. It, we are walking down the right path, albeit a narrow path. Think of it this way. If you lived in 1862 and you found yourself fighting against the guys in the gray uniforms, you knew that you were on the right side. Why? Because slavery was and slavery still is wrong. Well, being persecuted in a godless world can be kind of like that. It can tell whether we are living rightly in the, in the wrong kind of living world. So with that in mind, I want to talk about what else Jesus says about this persecution that is sure to come our way. We've all uh, have experienced certain forms of persecution for, for acknowledging that we are a Christian. But the truth is there is going to be more to come. And this morning, I have organized his teaching into three statements. And the first one is this. He says, don't be surprised when it comes, when persecution comes. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Well, did they persecute Jesus? Of course they did. So it's like a mathematical equation that says, if A is true, then B will happen. Well, A is true. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was crucified. So we should not be surprised when persecution also comes our way. To, to word it like a, a weather forecaster might say, if you follow Jesus, there's a 100% chance that you will have to endure the storms of persecution. In other words, Jesus says we should expect to be hated by the world. In his commentary on this text, William Barclay writes this, one of the outstanding qualities of Jesus was his sheer honesty. He never left men in any doubt as to what would happen to them if they chose to follow him. He was clear that he had come not to make life easy, but to make men great. I like that. Listen, in spite of what your favorite TV evangelist might say, Jesus did not teach a prosperity gospel but rather a persecution gospel. That's it, folks. And, and if you're believing in the, in the prosperity end of it, God love you, I hope he prospers you. That is not why Christ came. He did not come to make you a millionaire. He came to save your soul. That's kind of one of those mic drop moments. I think I'll just walk away and call it an end. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Martin Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. 
Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should and would be called upon to suffer. By the way, this is not the only time the Bible tells us to expect persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, so that no one should be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And in Matthew 24, 9, Jesus says, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Well, this forecast of a storm of persecution came true. And in fact, it has been raging for over 2,000 years. 11 of the 12 original disciples of Jesus were martyred for their faith. Only John died an old man, and he did so while in exile on the island of Patmos for his faith in Christ Jesus. History also shows us that, that the early Christians were forced to follow the first disciples' example. They were persecuted by Roman emperors like Nero, who blamed the burning of Rome on Jesus' followers, and then he punished them severely. He threw them to the lions, or he, get this, he hung them on poles and doused them with oil before setting them on fire to illuminate the paths of his garden. Now, some people would say, well, Pastor David, that was then, and this is now. Today, we have become much more civilized people. We have become much more tolerant. Christians surely aren't persecuted like they used to be. Friends, that is just not true. You watch the news. Do you know what's going on in the Middle East? Beheadings of children for confessing Jesus is Lord. The fact is our society is more resistant to Christianity than ever before. Our culture brags about its tolerance of other faiths, but the reality is our culture is tolerant of everything but Christianity. And in countries around the world, this intolerance is seen in the physical suffering of believers who are persecuted more today than they have ever been before. In her book, In the Lion's Den, author Nina Shea reports this, more Christians have been martyred for their faith in this century alone than in the previous 20 centuries of church history combined. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, right now in this age of tolerance, 2.2 billion people in 79 countries live under significant restrictions of their religious freedom. 225 million Christians live in countries where it is a crime to name the name of Jesus and to publicly worship him. And in this text, 
Like, like others, our Lord is saying we should not be surprised to find out that when you and I follow him, if we live according to the clear teachings of the Bible, that there are people in this sinful, fallen world that we live in who aren't going to approve of your lifestyle choices. They are not going to like you because what you stand for. In fact, just take a look at a portion of Jesus' teaching, the famous uh, Beatitudes that he spoke. If you strive to be poor in spirit today, some will rebuke you and say that you are just being self-righteous. If you mourn over sin, like gossip and pride and abortion on demand and homosexual marriage, others will be made to feel uncomfortable for embracing those those acceptances, and therefore they're not gonna wanna be around you. If you are meek, well, the meek will usually get run over by the proud, self-centered ones of this world. If you break out of your spiritual status quo and you hunger and thirst for God above all things, they're gonna label you as a religious fanatic. Sadly, there are Christians who label other Christians who are bold in their faith as religious fanatics. There's something wrong with that. You're going to be the brunt of comments like our our dear friend Rosie O'Donnell who once said that radical Christians are just as dangerous as radical Muslims. I don't know about you, but I've never seen groups of Christians running around killing people for not being Christians. Try to be merciful today. And there are people who are going to call you gullible. You strive to be pure in heart. Or as a young person, wear the true love weight ring and true love weights ring. And you're going to feel the terrible, terrible rebuke of a world that thrives on lust. The same world that uses sex to sell everything from fresh fruit to automobiles. Work to be a peacemaker? <laughs> well, get ready, because you're going you're to be embraced by people who enjoy conflict. You see... Living like Jesus makes you and I stand out. And the simple fact is our world doesn't like people who stand out for the wrong reasons. This fallen world system attacks nonconformists like the antibodies in our bloodstream attacks a a foreign uh, body like a splinter or a bacterial cell. So understand, Jesus taught the reality that Christians will face difficulty simply for being a Christian. Now, you and I certainly have not had to pay the kind of price that believers who live in Muslim nations or or communist nations have had to pay, but chances are a number of you have been marginalized by your friends. You've been marginalized by your coworkers when they couldn't understand why you wouldn't go out and, and party with them or why you don't find humor in their crude jokes or why you choose to attend church on Sunday morning instead of go out on the greens with the boys all morning long. I know of believers who have suffered persecution on the job. They were denied promotions. They were denied salary increases. They've been laid off and fired because they refused to be unethical in some way in a business that required you to be unethical. So I can guarantee you that if you take a stand for Jesus Christ, Based on your convictions, you will suffer some form of persecution. Following Jesus will not get you elected as prom queen. 
And in most cases, it will never get you elected as a senator or as a congressman. In this fallen world of ours, it won't bring you the popularity that we all long for. John MacArthur put it this way, every faithful believer will have some resistance and ridicule from the world, while others, for God's own purposes, will endure extreme suffering. I have to stop here for just a moment and say something that is very important. Sometimes Christians suffer persecution for the wrong reasons. What do I mean by that? I mean some persecution is a result of our own wrongdoing. Some Christians are ostracized because they are rude and obnoxious and unloving and judgmental. They are rude and obnoxious, unloving and judgmental. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Have you seen them? Have you been inflicted by one of them? Have they wounded you before? Some believers are ridiculed because they act more self-righteous than the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. That's hard to believe, but there are some among us. Some are persecuted because their methods of evangelism are rude and downright disrespectful. While there are other Christians who have chosen or have a hard time living life and continuing to live in sin. They ignore God's loving laws, call themselves a Christian, and then when painful consequences occur because of their actions, they say, God, why did you do this to me? Well, their difficulty, their persecution is not God's fault. It's their own fault. They sinned. They chose to disobey God. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 4.15 when he says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Anyone out there being persecuted for meddling? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> My point is, if we live our lives the way that Jesus has called us to live them, let it be known and let it be known that by our words and by our actions that we believe Jesus is Lord, we shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes our way. This leads me to a second thing that Jesus says about our text. He says, don't stumble. Way back in, in chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says this, all I have told you, so you will not, all this I have told you, so you will not fall away. In other words, our Lord is saying, don't let the trouble and hardship that comes from living a godly life in this fallen world make you want to give up. Keep following me on that narrow path. Keep walking in my steps. Keep going against the flow, even when it's hard to do. In verse 25, Jesus reminds us that, that even this persecution is a fulfillment of prophecy. So if anything, it should strengthen our faith in him. It should firm up our resolve to keep on keeping on. Plus, the truth is, there are benefits that can only be experienced by those who won't stumble, even through persecution. And here's the first one I want to mention. Suffering for Jesus deepens our relationship with him. When painful trials come our way, often we respond by studying the Bible more regularly than we normally do. We talk to God more, we pray to God more, we run to him for strength and for comfort. 
It was Abraham Lincoln who said, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. God to have a president who believed that today. Suffering has his way of driving us much closer to God than we ever would otherwise. And this is especially true when we are suffering because of our faith, because then we are really suffering with Christ Jesus. And when you suffer with or you suffer alongside someone, you grow incredibly close to that person. Soldiers who survived the horrors of prison camps in World War II and in Vietnam, they testify that their fellow prisoners were their closest friends for the rest of their life. They never lost touch with those guys. Well, the same principle is also seen in our relationship with Jesus. It's what Paul was getting at in Philippians 3.10 when he said this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul learned that when you are persecuted in Jesus' name, you literally suffer alongside of him. And when that happens, you grow closer to him, much closer than times of comfort and and, and ease and when you're pain-free. It's in these times that we learn that we indeed must lean upon Jesus, and that he is a very present help in our time of trouble and that we can be more than conquerors through him who loves us, through him who gave his life for us. Well, there's a second benefit that can only be experienced by those who persevere in the face of persecution, and it is this. Suffering shows others how much we value our faith. And make no mistake about it, it gives us an opening to do what we are supposed to do, and that is to share the gospel. I think this is what Jesus was getting at in verse 26 when he said this, when the advocate comes, he's referring to the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was ushered into this world, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. The fact is when we cling to our faith, In him, in spite of our persecution, we offer irrefutable proof that we believe that knowing Jesus is worth any suffering that may come our way. God uses our faithfulness to him in these hard times to literally draw people to himself. In 320 AD, during the reign of Roman Emperor Licinius, there was a Roman general that was stationed at a garrison in Sebasti, Armenia. He discovered that there were Christians among his troops, Roman soldiers, that had converted to Christianity. There were actually 40 of them. He had them arrested. He ordered them to recant their faith or to die. Well, they refused. It was in the dead of the winter. So the general had them strip off all their clothing and he let them stand out on some ice in the middle of a frozen lake. On shore was a heated bathhouse. He told them at any time they could reject Jesus, they could find shelter in that bathhouse or they could die out there on that frozen lake. Well, as these soldiers stood together in the bitter cold, they started to chant. 
40 brave soldiers for Jesus, 40 brave soldiers for Christ. We'll be true to our God and stare death in the face, though we perish on this lake of ice. We're 40 brave soldiers for Christ. The bathhouse attendant sat in the warmth and he listened to the soldiers. After many hours, finally one of the 40 broke down. He abandoned the group. He ran to that bathhouse and the soldiers were quiet for a while, but then shortly after that, they began to chant 39 soldiers for Jesus, 39 soldiers for Christ. Well, the attendant of that bathhouse was so moved by that moment so moved by the determination and the commitment of those 39 that he stripped off his clothes. He ran out into the middle of that lake and sang at the top of his lungs, 40 brave soldiers for Jesus, 40 brave soldiers for Christ. <laughs> Friends, when we cling to our faith, no matter how difficult it makes our lives, the world notices when we face illness and, and when we face heartbreak and, and even death, with a firm faith in God, people realize that our faith is real, that it is worth something. And often they will run because they will want to join us in it. Their reason is simple. They understand that if Jesus is worth dying for, then he must certainly be worth living for. Perhaps this is why history shows the church grew its fastest during times of persecution. And even today, it proves this to be true. In spite of years of persecution, the underground church in China is huge and still growing, has more members than we have population in the United States of America. And it is such a growing problem for that communistic nation. Is that what they have done is they have denied the visas of every one of our missionaries Every boot on the ground that we have from the Assemblies of God in China, their missionaries have been denied. Furthermore, they are denying visas once they expire of every Christian missionary, and they will not be able to come back into China to do their missionary work. That's how serious a problem it is for communist China. The church in Sudan is the fastest growing in, the Muslim, in any Muslim country because, as someone once said, the blood of the martyrs is often the seed of the church. So when persecution comes, and understand it will come, don't be surprised and don't stumble. And then Jesus says one more thing. He says, don't be sorrowful. In John 16, 16, which is not included in our reading this morning, it says this. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no longer. And then after a little while, you will see me. Our Lord was saying that our persecution may be hard, but when we all get to heaven, it will seem like it only lasted for a moment of time. And he uses the, the illustration of a mother giving birth, which I'm told is a very painful thing. But when she holds that little child in her arms for the very first time, all the discomfort of that labor, all the discomfort and hassles of the previous nine months are forgotten. The morning sickness, the fatigue, the pain of delivery. It's drowned out by the joy of that baby. So we may grieve today, but a time will come when our grieving will be turned into joy. And it's a joy that no one will be able to take away. 
You know, hindsight is always 2020, right? And Jesus is giving us the benefit of his eternal perspective on our future. And he does that by saying, trust me, because you're going you're gonna to look back one day and you're going to shout, it was worth it. It was so totally worth it. Jesus tells us that we should rejoice and we should be glad even in tough times because great is your reward in heaven. In other words, we can respond to persecution with joy because we know in light of eternity, it's not going to last very long at all. Also, our heavenly reward will more than compensate for our suffering. And I would just like to say something, and this is not scriptural, but this is what I believe with all my heart. It's a David Davism, so don't say that the Bible says this. I believe with all my heart that those who have paid a heavy price and have suffered for Christ Jesus, I believe that there is something extra special for them in heaven. I think for all of us, it's going to be the most, we can't even describe it. I couldn't even sit up here and try to describe what heaven looks like because none of us have seen it. It's going to be the most wonderful place. We are going to be so blessed to be there, but I believe those who have been persecuted, particularly those who have been martyred, they're in for something even more special. I believe that. I will believe that till the day I die, and then I'll find out if that is true. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says, For our light and more momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. History records that in the moment of their martyrdom, many believers acknowledge this fact. This is what gave Roland Taylor, Bishop Ridley, and John Bradford the impulse to kiss the stakes at which they were burned for their faith. It's what moved Obadiah Holmes after 90 lashes turned his back into hamburger to say to his magistrates, you have struck me with roses. It's why Thomas Hardcastle said, at his persecution, he called it a, a precious season of grace. And on the way to the hangman's noose, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, this is the end. But for me, it's just the beginning of life. These men said these things because they knew the glories of heaven for them was quite near. So you, if you are suffering today, for the right reasons, then count yourself fortunate. Because it means, folks, that you are on the right side. Be glad because God might use your response to lead someone to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice because when you get to heaven, you'll be glad that you followed through and you stuck with Christ even during the tough times. In fact, you won't be there five minutes before you're gonna say, why didn't I stand up more? Why didn't I mess more situations up with Christianity? Why didn't I have the boldness and the faith to speak when I knew and I had an opportunity, but I bit my tongue because I was afraid. I was fearful of what might happen to me. Why didn't I make my life count for more? I say to you this morning, when you are persecuted for your faith in Christ Jesus, you wear it like a badge of honor. Because your heavenly reward is the honor that you will receive in return for your momentary struggle. 
Scott, will you come, or Liz, will you come forward on keyboard? You know, up to this point, living in the good old USA has protected Christians, for the most part, from severe persecution. And of course, I think for that, we're all thankful. Sure, we've taken our hits for being a Christian. We've been called names. But you can clearly see, folks, you'd have to be blind not to see that things are changing. I believe that a time is coming in the good old United States where being a Christian is gonna start costing you something. And it's gonna be more than just name calling and ridicule and being marginalized and not being invited to the company party and all those other things. And rather than, than, than fear for that moment, I want you to try and, and, and decide and think about what an honor it will be to take a stand for the one who took the ultimate stand for you. He gave his life. We should not fear, but instead we need to pray ourselves ready and continue to grow in our faith and in our understanding of Christ and his ways and his teachings. Last Sunday and throughout the month of November is the month where we recognize the persecuted church in America. It's a time where we, we set aside some time to actually pray for them because we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries that are being brutally beaten, tortured, raped, beheaded, ultimately murdered for their faith in Jesus. And I thought that this scripture that we covered in the book of John is an ideal one to make us think seriously about what being a Christian is all about. And for each one of us to determine if we could in fact stand up against such persecution, but even more importantly, would we? Would you stand up? I've asked five helpers. In fact, you guys can work your way up here on the stage now. I've asked five helpers to come up to the platform with me to pray for Christians everywhere who are or who will suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. And I'm excited because we have them from all ages. We have Adia Barto from our children's ministry. She's coming down the, from the balcony there. We have Ava Johnson from our junior high ministry. We have Haley Rail from our high school ministry. David Johnson from our young adult ministry. And Marilyn is representing our church board as a member of our church board. They're gonna come up and they're going to pray individually for the persecuted church as well as for us. I'd like you to bow your heads and I would like you to pray along with them. And I'm gonna start with you, sweetheart. Okay, right here. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray for the persecuted church and that you will give them courage and wisdom as they spread the gospel and that you will give them wisdom and that the many people will come to know Jesus and that you will give us courage to spread the gospel too. In Jesus' name, amen.
Dear God, I pray for all those who are suffering because of, of their faith in you right now, God. I pray for the persecuted church and all those who are hurting. I pray for us too. Although we are not um, suffering physical pain, it will get worse, but give us a shield on our hearts and minds to keep going no matter what. Amen. I pray for all of the churches and those who have been called to serve God. I pray for those being persecuted for their faith that the Lord gives them the strength and deliverance to carry out what he has called them to do. Give these missionaries strength for that even when in the hardest and scariest times, they stand firm in the foundation God has planted. That the Lord surrounds each and every one of these people with his hedge of protection. And we declare in his name that no calamity shall befall them, no hand should even come near them. That they go forth spreading your word with your angels watching over them. I ask that you give them peace and fill them with your presence. Give them the words to say that will touch every listener's ear and heart. I pray over the receivers of your message that you give them the open minds that are accepting and willing to come to know you. Give them peace everlasting like they've never felt before and open the door to give them a taste of what your love and mercy feels like enough for them to crave more and dive into a relationship with you. And lastly, I pray for our missionaries, families, and their host churches. Give them peace in knowing that you are good and that everything has already been pre-planned by you. Every outcome will be good and fulfilling of you. That you help work and serve in their lives, bring people into their lives to give comfort and godly wisdom and show them you and that you are good now more than ever. Keep them coming back to the church and give them this building and let them feed and pour themselves out to you in your name. Heavenly Father, we lift up all those Christians around the world who are suffering, Father, that it says in your word where two or more are gathered in your name, Lord, you hear us. And right now we're surrounded by a multitude of believers, Lord. And I pray that all of us, as we lift up our prayers to you, Lord, that it would be as beautiful incense before your face, God, that you would hear our cries, that you would immediately send your spirit, send your angels, Lord, to strengthen and uplift in those who are truly being suffered and persecuted, Lord for the name of Jesus right now, God. I just pray that you would give them strength, Lord. You would give them perseverance. And most importantly, Lord, I pray for the evil ones who are doing this persecution, Lord, that, that you would stop on their tracks and you would show them that evil that they're doing, Lord, and that they would be convicted of their sins, Lord, and that they would truly understand that the Christian God is the one true God, the God of love who sent his son to die for the sins of this world, Lord. Open their eyes to the truth, Lord. Holy Spirit, convict them and show them the way of life, Lord, that Jesus is the only way, God. We just pray and ask this in your mighty and powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Beloved, your word says that your eyes go back and forth across the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are turned to you. That you promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. So Lord, as we bring our brothers and sisters to you, we bring ourselves and we are saying, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to fight the good fight of faith. Help us to finish our race. Lord, we thank you that you who are in us is greater than he who is in the world. We ask, Father, that you would strengthen us by your grace and your mercy and your power so that, Lord, we will be the salt that you declared we are. We will be the light that you said we are. Father, we thank you that that is your will for us, and we declare it in the name of Jesus for all of us. And we all said, amen. It sure does my heart good 
to hear the prayers of all generations. Isn't that awesome? Could you all stand to your feet, please? Almost seems anticlimactic. To, now you have to hear me pray after hearing all of those beautiful prayers. But before we pray, I'm just going to end this service. Um, I never like to end a church service without giving people an opportunity to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. I know that this message was for believers. It was a message to let us know that uh, persecution is real. It's going to happen. It's going to be a part of our lives. And uh, we need to be ready for it. We need to be prayed up for it. We need to be strengthened for it. And that's an important reminder for every single one of us. But if you are here today or you're watching online and, and you don't know Jesus, you know who he is, but you've never committed your life to him. In my closing prayer, just, just pray a simple prayer of confession and belief. Just tell Jesus you, you know that he's the son of God. He's the only way to, to, to the father. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. He will. The Bible says you will be washed clean. You, you'll become a new creation. At that point, the Holy Spirit now indwells you. You become a vessel of the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, you can start a new life. Does it mean you're perfect? Absolutely not. Good grief, look at me. But you have God's grace that will strengthen you and guide you, and, and the Holy Spirit that will, will strengthen you and guide you, and God's grace is there for you when you miss, don't miss the mark, and we all do that. This, there's this crazy feeling that Christians think we're perfect. Oh my goodness, that is the furthest thing from the truth. That's again one of those retaliatory arrows from the world that wants to call you a hypocrite when you mess up. Well, you mess up and you ask for forgiveness and, and God forgives you. So we'd love for you to find your way into the kingdom of God and we'd love as a church to come alongside of you and to help to to encourage you, to help disciple you in the ways of Christ. So while I'm praying, just pray a simple prayer. And uh, if you do that, would you do me a favor? I'm gonna be in the foyer uh, greeting as you leave. Come up and let me know that you prayed that prayer. It'll be a great encouragement to me. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the worship that we experienced earlier. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for my helpers up here who prayed from their hearts for those who are suffering for you. And God, as we leave this place today, I pray that we would go in strength and we would go in peace, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, Lord, that they would be conversations that would build up and not tear down. Pray that we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world and it would open up opportunities for us to share our goodness with others. And when those opportunities come, Father, that we would walk into that boldly, knowing that you will give us the words to speak. Father, I pray that uh, everything that we do this week, that you would prosper as we do it unto you. And I ask also, Lord, that you would keep us safe from sickness and disease. You would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us that would prevent us from joining together as a church family and worshiping you next week. We just ask that you would be with every aspect of our life, mind, body, soul, and spirit, and that we would trust in you for all things. We would realize that you are the source of all things and that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for blessing us with your presence today. 
And we ask these things all in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Thank you for being here today.